The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your church, for the, for the grace and the mystery of being part of your body uh, on earth. We ask God that you would now bless us as we step into your ancient creeds, these ancient declarations of faith. We recognize that we are part of the church Catholic, uh, not just universal geographically in our time, but, but temporally, back through the ages, that we are part of something so much greater than ourselves, something that you have put together, something that you have uh, blessed us with, your own body. So we pray, God, that we would both know you and know how to serve you as we step into these creeds. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Got a little taller. So we are uh, doing, we're in week two of a six-week study on the creed, the Apostles' Creed specifically, but really we're kind of looking at both. We want to see the Nicene Creed, especially if it fills out things a little further. We're going to take a look specifically at the controversy. What's that? You got, you got extra? We got extra breakfast, so if you need more fruit in your life, um, you can have it. So we are. Um, uh, so we're looking. Last week we looked at, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and this week we're going to look at, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Let's, in fact, let's just say the whole creed together. Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Somebody need any, any sheets? Anybody lacking a sheet? Okay. So, last week we said that uh, when we say I believe, the, uh, the Latin word is credo which really has more of a connotation of I believe in or I believe into uh, something. I'm committing myself to. I'm placing my trust in. It is certainly mental assent. I believe that God exists, but it is, that's, you've got to have that as a starting place, but it's more than that, right? It's much more than that. It's commitment. It's trust. Um, so we are, when we say I believe in Jesus Christ, we're not just saying, I believe He existed, which we certainly do. In fact, no, hardly, hardly anybody uh, who has looked at it, no scholars, think that there was not a man named Jesus. Um, whether he or not He rose from the dead, I, I, think, is, I think, personally, is without question uh, historically, but uh, certainly not everybody agrees with that. If He was the Son of God, that's, that's uh, a matter of faith as well. However... Um, what we're saying is, I believe in Jesus. I believe into Him. Uh, it's belief is assent 
but it's also trust, it's commitment. Uh, we're saying that we believe that Jesus, when we say I believe in Jesus Christ, I am, we are trusting that his, what Jesus accomplished, His finished work, is saving for us. Like That's what we're saying. When I say I believe in Jesus, I'm not just saying He existed, I'm saying that what Jesus accomplished on the cross in His life, death, and resurrection is saving for me. Um, so, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus. So Jesus is uh, His proper name, His given name, like your name might be Robert or Jane or, or wherever it is. Um, you're given, his, it's just His given name. It's His name. It's, and Jesus is sort of an anglified version of Jesus. Jesus was the Greek version of uh, the Hebrew name Joshua. Right? Yeshua. And so... The name, the, the meaning of that name is God is salvation. So certainly, I mean, the angel delivered the name to Mary. You're going to name him Jesus. Uh, God is salvation. That was a descriptor, uh, but it was just it was also a common name. Uh, it was a declaration. Uh, his name describes what he offers to all of us. Um, but it, it also, being a proper name, it just roots him as a human. Right? It just roots him as a, a, a person who lived at a given moment in time uh, and in a particular place like you and I. Uh, he lived in, um, in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Um, so that's the name Jesus, but Christ is not his last name. Except in the sense that uh, sort of in, in the Middle Ages, somewhat, they got surnames because if... if um, Someone's last name was Carter is because they were they carried a cart around. Or someone's last name was Farmer is because they were a farmer, right? So, um, and so we could think of it as his last name. But if he if he had children, which he did not, Dan Brown, um, um, <laughs> but their last name wouldn't have been Christ. It probably would have been Carpenter, right? Their last um, their last name, but um, but their name, last name would not have been Christ because Christ is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. And uh, it, is, uh, it is his office, right? It is his title. Uh, and, and really, Christ is um, more than just... I want to say, there, there are multi-dimensions to Christ as Savior, right? And you may have heard this before. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king, right? Those are really... Uh, I think there's probably more. But I think if you can kind of get your head and your heart around Christ means that He is the ultimate prophet, He's the ultimate priest, He's the ultimate king, then we'll probably be getting pretty close to what it means that He is the Christ. Um, what was Joseph's last name? Do we know? Well, I, I don't know what Joseph's last name was. I don't know that, know that they had last names. Um, so... But we're never, we're never told what, what his last name was. Pro, I mean, probably Carpenter, I guess. Joseph Carpenter. Joseph Carpenter. Gibbs. Joseph Gibbs. Um. Bar whatever his father's name So as the prophet, I mean, what does a prophet do? What, what, is, what, is, what is the function of a prophet? To speak the words of God, right? Just to hear from God and proclaim those words to the Lord. So in a very real sense, Jesus, as the ultimate prophet, 
is the ultimate Moses, the ultimate Isaiah, the ultimate Elijah. He is the prophet par excellence. He is, um, because he is not just speaking the words that he heard from God, he is God, right? But he is in flesh, he is speaking his own words. Um, He is the ultimate prophet. What does a priest do in a sort of ancient sense? Stands in front of people and gabs about stuff he doesn't really know about. Uh, no. All right, say that up. Say it again, Jim. He's a mediator between God and men. So that's right. So the priest, the function of the priest was to stand between God and the people and to make sacrifice, right? And so Jesus is the ultimate priest because he offers the ultimate sacrifice, which is his own body. He is uh, our mediator and our advocate. We often say. Right? He is the one who stands between us. So, in our tradition, our denominational tradition, we say, we often call my office that of priest. That is only in a historic sense, where the, uh, but not in, and I pray for you. I'm an intercessor, but I am not a mediator, right? I will not, cannot stand between you and God, right? Um, because I, I, I mean, I can't. Because I need a Savior just as much as you do. And I, even, I said in my sermon at 8 o'clock, I, I'm not a shepherd, I'm a lead sheep. I, I say, follow me to the good shepherd. Right? But if, it's, I mean, if that wolf's coming, you better be faster than I am. So, um, <laughs> so he's the priest. He stands between uh, the, uh, the people and God to make sacrifice. So he's the ultimate Aaron. Uh, he's the ultimate Joshua in the sense of um, not Joshua after who succeeded Moses, but Joshua and Ezekiel, which you may or may not have seen, but Joshua is this um, priest who stands at the altar of God. Um, so he's the ultimate priest because he makes the ultimate sacrifice, which is himself. And not like we say our military, God bless them, that they make the ultimate sacrifice. They can't make more than that, but that's not a mediating sacrifice. Uh, he... It, he is the ultimate sacrifice in the sense that there is no further sacrifice that needs to happen between you and God. Like the sin that you have already committed is paid for. The sin that you are committing today is paid for. The sin that you will continue to commit is paid for. Do you need to confess it? Yes, for your own good, but not for His. It's paid for. It's done. The mediator, uh, has, the priest has made the sacrifice. Okay? So... Shall you confess your sin? Yes. But are you forgiven for unconfessed sin? Yes. If your faith is in Christ, truly. So, he's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate king. He is, uh, what does a king do? What, it rules. And what is... The, what is um, so, like, think about David. He ruled God's people on God's behalf, Right? And yet God, uh, you remember the covenant that God made with David? I'm going to put someone on the throne who will rule over your people forever. And that sounds like, well, that's great, but we typically die after 100 years or so. You know, and um, how is that going to happen? Well, because he defeated death and rose again. And that's, his kingdom is not geographic. It's spiritual. So he's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Um, that's, that's what it means to be the Christ. But there's, there's really, there's more. And I want to just spend a little time... Um, Reading in the Old Testament just a little bit. Uh, Isaiah, if you've any, ever spent time in Isaiah, Isaiah projects these um, a, a couple of different characters. And one is uh, sort of a, a champion, sort of the ultimate king, the one who, the, the, uh, the one who is going to 
deliver God's people from the oppressors. So I'm just looking at uh, chapter 11. You may have heard this uh, passage before. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you remember who Jesse was? David's father, right? There shall come forth from the shoot, um, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So he's speaking well after David. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So what we see in this is that um, God has set His anointed wisdom and His might and His strength and His favor upon this leader who brings peace to the land. Right? So that is, and of course everybody in Israel as they're anticipating the Messiah, they are looking forward to this champion, this great king above all kings, who would lead them. And of course, in their context, we always interpret things through the lens of our own context. They, in Jesus' day, they were looking for people to kick out the Romans because they were oppressing them. They were, they were taking too much tax. They were infringing on their religious rights. So that's Isaiah 11. They weren't quite as sure to do what to do with Isaiah 53. And I'm sure there's, you know, you, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. You can go through all of these. You've heard Isaiah 53, but you read that on Good Friday. Who has believed what they heard from us? Who is, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed Him stricken. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, that's the wounds on his back, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As I understand it, the way I've been taught, nobody really put the champion and the suffering servant together. And yet, We see, of course, in Jesus that He is the same. That by being the suffering servant, He becomes the champion. That His glory comes in His defeat, in His death. Nobody anticipated that. So Jesus is the Christ. In that sense, He is both Isaiah's champion and He is Isaiah's suffering servant. I want to um, read some Psalms and to think specifically about how to read... Jesus into the Psalms. 
to think if Jesus were the one saying, and a lot of them, not all of them probably, but a lot of them. So I'm going to pick a couple, and then I'm going to ask you to just throw out some numbers, and we'll see, just so you don't think I've just set it up as a, you know, a sort of straw man. Oh, read it. But let me read Psalm, um, Psalm 62. Think of this from a specifically Jesus' perspective. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. I mean, can you just read the last night of Jesus' life into this? They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone my soul waits in silence. My hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. So we just, I mean, just Jesus all, all in that both. It's Jesus projecting that. God, the Father, and Him alone I trust. Uh, and in how Jesus was treated. Let's look at Psalm 40. Again, just think of the suffering servant. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Think Holy Saturday. Between the cross and the resurrection, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, made my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And there's just so much that we... I mean, can you put that on your situation? Of course. He reached me out of the, reached down and pulled me out of the pit. But Jesus is there as well because He is the Christ. Alright, give me a number. Just pick out a number of a song between 1 and 150. Let's see if it works. 22. 20, psalm 22. Alright, yes. Okay, did you do that on purpose? Do you know that psalm? Okay, that's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a, that's a softball. Um, that's a softball. Thank you. Uh, but we certainly, uh, Jesus procures that one for himself. So let's give me, give me, just give me another number. 191. Well, you got to be under 150. We're not, we're not apocryphal. We're not, yeah. Psalm 1. Okay, Psalm 1. Let's go to Psalm 1 and see if it works. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, do you do that? Yes, you should. You should do that, but you don't. But you have one who does, who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And so that is, that is Christ. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Give me another number. 32. See, I have no idea what Psalm 32 is. I didn't know Psalm 1. 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, that's not Jesus, but He's the one by whom our sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So, 
It goes on, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How can God forgive the iniquity of my sin? It is because there is a man uh, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And he stands in our place. So it's not, I'm not saying it's, it's neat and tidy. I mean, you might have to do some work, but it points us to the Messiah. He is not the Messiah because of his own, the strength of his character. Of course, he had the greatest character. But because He is God. He is prophet, priest, and king. And remember on the road to Emmaus, on that, um, that resurrection night, He sits, he walks with the disciples. He's starting beginning with the law and the prophets and the Psalms. He tells all about how all of Scripture points to Him. So, I just want you to see, like it, He is the Christ because He is God, and the, it all points to Him. Okay. So we're saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, or I believe Jesus as, I believe in Jesus as the Christ. This man, Jesus, is the Christ. He's fully human, but he is fully God. He's 200 percent. He's not 50-50. He's 100 100, right? So any questions about that before we go to his only son? All right. So he is God's only Son. He is the Son in relationship to the Father. He is not God Jr. That's important. The Son describes His relationship to the Father. It's a matter of their roles. He and the Father are one, He says. But He is, um, he is he subjects, that person of the Trinity subjects Himself to the Father. The Father always is lifting Him up. But you can imagine the confusion or the controversy that could come out of this. He's the Son of God. He's born of a woman. It would seem perhaps that He would be conceived or eternally conceived or created. He'd be somehow younger than the Father or secondary to the Father. And so in the very early centuries of the church, there's a man named Arius who was teaching that very thing, that he was the firstborn of all creation. Well, that's right out of Colossians. That God the Father created God the Son. And that became this big stink. Um, because people were saying, no, wait a second. Yes, it says He's the firstborn of all creation. Also, in John, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so, what are we to make of that? Arius taught that Jesus was homoousios. That he was of a similar substance. That's what homoousios means. That he's a similar substance of God. Now, for the Greeks, substance was everything. You are the same substance as your parents. We think of it as character or um, makeup or DNA. And they thought of it as substance. He's of a similar substance. But see, the thing is that God is eternal. And if he was created, then Jesus is not eternal. So yes, we can call him God, but he's sort of um, God Junior. He's sort of God, uh, sort of a sub sub God, not quite as divine. He's divine, but not quite as divine as the Father. Is what Arius was teaching. Okay, and yet there were uh, that was vehemently opposed by many who said he is not Hamoiusias. He is Hamausias. You know what is the difference in that? Iota. My mom used to say, I don't care one iota about... Uh, if you're, I didn't know what in the world iota was until I went to seminary. 
It is the, it's the Greek letter, the smallest Greek letter, I. And so, homoousios means he is of the same substance. Like, um, well, I don't need to say that, but the, word, the, uh, the prefix homo, H-O-M-O, means same. We know that. So, uh, he is of the same substance. And, and historians have said many times that the smallest Greek letter nearly split the entire Christian church. How did they solve this? Well, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea. And so, uh, Constantine was there, Augustine was there, uh, Athanasius was there, and Arius was there, and so were somewhere between 220 and 318 bishops. Just depends on who you read. Dan Brown, again, <laughs> will tell you uh, that the vote was very close. It was not. Arius and two of his buddies uh, voted in favor of Hamoiousios, and everybody else voted against it. Now, I don't know uh, that exactly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't there. But I understand, the way I was taught anyway, Ted, you can tell me if I'm, if I'm off on this, but um, good so sounds good so far. Praise God. And, um, but the way I was taught and the way I under, was um, shown by my professor in seminary, it was not a close vote uh, at all. The, um, and, you know, so the question is, was the divinity of Christ founded, uh, decided by a human vote? No. It was the wisdom of the council that looked at the scriptures and understood the apostolic teaching to say, this is what they're saying. So, why is he begotten? Because doesn't begotten mean born? Didn't you, can't you say, we wouldn't say it in our culture really, but did you, that you begat your children? Yes. And what did you begat? A child of the same substance as you are, right? They have, you can, whether it's by, um, uh, you can look at their face and tell, you can look at their personality and say, oh yeah, that's chip off the old block, right? Jesus, to say that Jesus was, begat, was begotten, He was only begotten, right? That's what the Gospel of John says. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish. The scripture calls Him only begotten. To say that He was begotten is, is a way of understanding that God the Father and God the Son are of the same substance. And so if He is begotten as a sort of metaphorical term to understand that God the Father and God the Son are of this, they are homoousios. They are of the same substance. They are, um, and so if God is eternal, then Jesus is eternal. Now you and I, we might say we're begotten of the Father. We're children of God. We're, we are born again. But we are not only begotten. He is, uh, he is born in He's not born in the sense that He was conceived and born. He is of the same substance. And He is unique in that way. So if that sounds sort of academic and weird and you're not really sure what I've been talking about for the last five minutes, I, I get it. But just trust me on this, right? He is, uh, and so that's why we say in the Nicene Creed, he is, they, that's why they spent, and the Creed was what came out of the Council of Nicaea. It was actually affirmed 100 years later the Council of Constantinople. But, the, um, but that He is God from God, light from light, true God, true God, uh, begotten, but not made. That's why we say that. He was not created. He was not made by the Father. He always has been. He has, Jesus, the man, certainly had an origin, but Jesus, uh, um, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, had no origin, like God the Father. 
He is of one being, of one substance. Hamausios, not iota. So, that's a big difference. And it might not sound like much, but it has shaped who you are as a Christian. That's really cool, I think. I mean, that, that Nicene Council has had profound implications on the formation of the church that you are a part of. And I don't just mean me as rector, but I mean your denomination, historic Church of England, going back before that, because it's what the Scriptures say. So, important. Alright, so there is... So I've gone through that. Good. Any questions about Jesus as the only Son of God? Okay, good. I'm not saying that you, do you question He's the only Son of God. Because you might raise your hand and think, I don't want to look... I, don't want, I have a question, but I don't want to raise my hand and look like a heretic. I don't think He's... Not, not, anything I'm not clear about. Yeah. Yes, Kat. Yes, Jesus was the agent of creation. All that, because he was in the beginning with the Word. Well, I'll just go ahead and read that. John 1. Well, I'm sure what I said was right. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. So here's John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then, verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, then I don't understand what the controversy would be then. When, when the Well, because Arius was teaching, they were, tra- they were trying to figure out who Jesus was. It, it wasn't just a... Um, and it took, you know, decades, really a couple of centuries, to figure out that Jesus was, in fact, fully God and fully man, because Jesus didn't say, hey, I'm fully God and fully man. And they knew as well as we did that you can't be that. And so, um, because, I mean, like you can't be conceived... By a virgin, you can't be um, raised from the dead. They 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 knew as well as we we did about that. So, um, so they were trying to figure out. It was an honest wrestle. I mean, so Arius was that that was condemned as heresy, but it didn't mean it wasn't an honest effort on Arius's part to figure out who Jesus was. That's a good that's a good endeavor. But the, where what I'm trying to say is that where the where the church landed and look and interpreted scripture uh, through the Spirit. Is that is that um, Jesus is fully God, fully human, but this, as the second person of the Trinity, He is without origin, so He is of the same substance. So, but that's how you can imagine. I mean, again, that's hard to that's hard to get at, and it's hard to understand if if Scripture Paul calls Him the firstborn of all creation. So it's I mean it's a you know like many things you might say well we have Scripture on our side. It has to be all taken in context. It takes the church. I mean, that's why we can't just go off on our own. It takes the church. Yeah, Jim. On one, in one of the Gospels, during Jesus' baptism, 
um, the voice of God said, today I have begotten you, mm -hmm. you are my son. How does that reconcile with being eternal? Uh, so Jim's question is, um, one of the, uh, in the Gospels it says, today I have begotten you. Uh, when he comes up out of the water of baptism, the voice speaks, this is my uh, beloved son. Uh, I've made, so it's, they're quoting, he's quoting a psalm that would have been spoken originally over David. I have made you my son. Um, so in that sense, in the baptismal sense, he is uh, uh, inaugurating Jesus' ministry. The Spirit is coming upon him. He's empowering him to, for his messianic ministry. Moving away from being a carpenter and into his messianic role. Jesus, you can imagine, I mean, Jesus the boy was still figuring that out. We see that in the temple. So that's kind of where he understood. He was begotten in, in that sense. But he says, This is, you are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Because he was in his father's house. Right. Right. Yeah, Ted. So this, you know, after they got Arius straightened out, this doesn't split the church because people can see how the Son is of the substance of the Father. But then when you get to the Holy Spirit, then the filioque clause does split. Well, listen, that, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. 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 Who proceeds from who? Um, you know, listen, I want to be clear. I mean, it didn't, just because the Council of Nicaea said it, it went on for another hundred years. I mean, there, there was, it took a long time for that general understanding around the church to, to go away. It was, the bishops were probably in the minority under the, the in less, less than, so, oh, speaking of bishops, my, my goodness. Well, your grace, glad to see you. Please, come teach us, yes. Have a question. Okay. You? We got to get to our Lord, and then we got to get to Christmas. We got three minutes. Go. As I understand the Jewish faith, they do not and have never accepted Jesus as the Messiah. That's. Is that correct? Well, I mean, you're talking about the large faith, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that stem right from the from Jesus's time? the Jewish leaders at the time, the priests, the Pharisees. Oh, yeah, that's, that's correct. And it just has continued. Yeah, the, the Christians uh, were you know, just a little minority who said Jesus is the Messiah. They were still Jews. And, um, and now that today there's a minority of ethnic Jews or even, well, ethnic Jews, I guess, that, um, that would say that, that Jesus is the, the Messiah. Um, but, but by and large, the establishment has said no. Uh, all right, so He is our Lord, and I'd love to ask you what this means to you. And I don't have the time at this point to ask of the group, what does it mean to you that Jesus is your Lord? But Jesus as Lord means that He is supremely authoritative, right? So why is He authoritative? It's because He is God, because He is divine. Um, Jesus says, if you love Me, you'll obey My commands. He is not saying that to obey is the same thing as to love. Like, if I am hungry, I'm going to eat lunch. But eating lunch is not the same thing as being hungry, right? One comes before the other. There is a love relationship that is established, but the natural place that that leads is to obedience. Just like I have a love relationship with my wife, that leads naturally to uh, and sometimes unnaturally, to um, the working things out. And I'm, you know, we're 
submitting ourselves to one another, my behavior is not the same as it would be if I were not married to her. Right? That relationship changes things. So, um, love comes first, but it is expressed often in obedience. Um, one of my professors, Paul Zoll, said something, I think I've said it here before, that grace creates what the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, grace creates what the Decalogue wants. The Decalogue wants the life it describes. No murder, no adultery, no uh, deceit, no gods before God, right? And on down the list. But it doesn't have the power to create that in you. It only has the power uh, to condemn. Grace creates in us the power to do what is described. Uh, So, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's Christmas. We'll get there in December. Um, um, Your Grace, do you have anything to say uh, about this, to weigh in on the the ancient creed, uh, you being one who stands in apostolic succession as we talk about the Apostles' Creed? (laughs) (laughs) Well... Yes. We got two more weeks on Jesus, so I hope you'll be back. God bless you.